50 next Sunday. That's why I'm going to Iceland, so I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> I think it's kind of this in-between space where time doesn't uh, keep moving. So, um, but one of my friends for my 50th birthday is like, hey, I'm going to buy some concert tickets. He couldn't go, so he gave them to me and, and my cousin. We went last night to a concert at the casino in Kansas City, so you know it's got to be good. Um, and we saw Men Without Hats, Safety Dance, if you remember that song from the 80s, and then Howard Jones. Um, I don't know if you know any of his songs, but he had several songs that were pretty good. But here's the thing. Most of it was not good. <laughs> and the lead act didn't come on until like 1025. And it's like, the room was full of like 50 and 60-year-old people, okay? It's like, man, I mean, I was yawning before the thing started, right? So anyways, late night, but um, it was just ridiculous. Like, I was just like, how are these, not so much the main act. I mean, Howard Jones has sold a lot of records, okay? But Men Without Hats, I'm like, I didn't pay money for that ticket. Somebody paid money for that, and they're still making a living doing it. It's just crazy, so, you know? Bottom line, come up with a really stupid, catchy song that just keeps paying you forever, and then I guess you just do that for the rest of your life. So anyways, I'm a little sleep-deprived this morning, but we're going we're gonna to keep moving here. Um, this morning, all I can tell you guys this morning is to strap in, um, put your thinking caps on. It's going to be a wild ride um, through um, the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be looking at uh, what's arguably uh, the most debated phrase in the Apostles' Creed this morning. So let's go ahead and stand and recite it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, um, I just was noticing as we're going through that, the version that we chose to, cho- to use, um, most versions say, and the phrase we're on today is, he descended into hell. Um, we have a version that says he descended to the dead, which is really more accurate. But uh, I just want to talk through this with you. Um, so, you know, the initial Apostles' Creed, an older version would have said he descended into hell. Let me start by saying that you won't find those specific words in Scripture. Um, Just as a reminder to you that the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. It's not in the Bible. It's just something that points us to God's Word. So we're going to kind of unpack this wildly debated statement. So Jesus descending into hell was not a part of the original Apostles' Creed written in the second century. Okay, it was added about the fifth century Um, really wasn't fully kind of embraced or adopted until about the 7th or 8th centuries. To this day, uh, a lot of denominations don't even have that sentence uh, in the creed when they 
posted or say it in their church. Others will have that phrase but then have an asterisk and they'll explain to you then that it wasn't in the original document and some uh, denominations haven't. So why is, it, why is there so much controversy surrounding this whole thing? Well, for one, it's just a really poor translation of biblical um, language, which makes a claim that never actually happened. Um, but as I studied the debate this week, um, I do feel like there is value in this statement um, if it's interpreted more accurately in Scripture. So, um, and honestly, it was kind of funny as I was kind of reading some different pastors' opinions on, on this and people that I kind of respected, like, there's some folks that I, I really respect on a lot of things that just had an interpretation of this is just, I was just like, I don't agree with that at all. So um, I'm doing, doing my best of what I feel like um, is, is uh, the appropriate way for us to handle it. So there's a lot of opinions on this, but let's begin by evaluating just the scriptural account of the time between the cross and the resurrection, which is where the debate uh, takes place. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 27, it's page 907. We're going to be in Bible a lot, so get one out, uh, get your phone open, whatever you're going to use. We're going to be digging around quite a bit here. <clears throat> so Matthew 27, we're going to start in verse 57. So this is right after Jesus dies on the cross. 57 says, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So, when did Jesus descend into hell in that account? It doesn't say it, does it? Right? There's no mention of it. And it's just kind of part of this age-old question of exactly what was happening on Saturday. 
So between the, the cross on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, what was Jesus' status on Saturday? In order to get some better clarification on that, we have to look at some other New Testament writings. So I want you to turn your Bibles over to Ephesians 4. It's page 1068. Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. So Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 8. This is why it says, and he's quoting a, a psalm. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So verse 8, as I said, is a direct quote from Psalm 68, prophesying about what Jesus would one day do, his payment for our sin and his victory over death through his resurrection, being the catalyst to set the captives, spiritual captives free. Then in verse 9, Paul says that Jesus descended to the lower earthly regions. Well, what does that mean? I want you to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's page 1110 in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to follow the rabbit hole deeper here. In verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who had been disobedient long ago. So Scripture tells us that apparently after Jesus' death, and before his resurrection, he descended and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits or set captives free. Still nowhere have we read that he descended into hell, but to the lower earthly regions, as Paul said. So what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Jesus himself spoke about this holding tank for spirits. In Hebrew, the old, in the Old Testament scripture, um, that holding tank was called Sheol, which is what we've been seeing about, right? So part of the reasons why I was like, play that song so that I can make sure everybody understands what Sheol is, okay? Sheol means the realm of the dead, the realm of the dead. The New Testament Greek term for that holding tank is the word Hades, okay? You may be more familiar with that word. That is a different word than the Greek word for hell. Okay, the Greek word for hell is Gehenna. And Hades is temporary, but Gehenna is eternal. Okay, two different things. Thoroughly confused yet? <laughs> Imagine dealing with this all week, studying it and trying to write a sermon on it, right? All you have to do is just listen for a few minutes. So we're going to keep digging around a little bit. I want to turn to what's maybe a familiar story for you in Luke Chapter 16, if you guys could turn there. It's page 953, Luke 16. In verse 19, Jesus tells this story. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was, was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you are a great chasm. A great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here uh, to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is teaching that there is this holding tank for spirits after people die called Hades. And it's a holding tank that has two different sides. There is, uh, and it's separated by this great chasm. It says there's a side for lost souls, people who never surrendered their life to God, where this uh, rich man resided. And then there's a side for saved souls, where Lazarus is. Um, and uh, sometimes it's referred to as Abraham's bosom, okay? Abraham, being an Old Testament saint, uh, was on the good side of the chasm. So this is where the folks who lived before Jesus came to earth resided after they died, okay? It's not where you and I will go. We don't go to a holding tank, okay? We, we, we get put right into heaven or hell. <laughs> and once you were placed on, on a particular side, you can see in the story, you could not cross over to the other side. You were just waiting for the ultimate judgment, the final judgment of souls mentioned in the book of Revelation, Okay? Now, humor me one more time. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation. Okay? It's in the back, almost at the very end. Chapter 20. Revelation 20. Starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in to the lake of fire. So you can see there in verse 14, right? Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So the apostle John writes that Hades is temporary holding take for Old Testament souls, (laughs) is a separate place from the lake of fire, which is what we call hell or Gehenna. So, did Jesus descend into hell between the cross and the resurrection? No. 
Did he descend to Hades, the temporary holding tank for souls? That's what seems to make the most sense as we view the New Testament writings. So if the creed had said he descended to Hades, I could get on board with that, okay? Um, but in the versions that say he descended to hell, I don't, I don't believe that that's, that's the case, okay? So we've belabored that long enough, all right? A lot, of, a lot of debate around it, but here's the thing, the bottom line, the million-dollar question really in all of this is why does it matter? Why does it matter? Ultimately, what does it tell us about Jesus? So here's a theory that makes a lot of sense to me. Last week, we studied the phrase that Jesus suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. And remember, in the early church, we talked about that there was a lot of discussion, debate, controversy over groups of people that were trying to prove or say that Jesus was not fully human, okay, which, which meant that um, they were attacking the claim that Jesus actually died on the cross and that some were, were saying that he just passed out. Um, from his intense pain, and then when he was put in the coolness of the cave, um, that he revived himself, which is just kind of ridiculous to, to think. For one, they shoved a spear into his heart, so it's kind of hard to survive that. But even if you could survive all of that, the beating that you took, the blood loss that you took, um, it'd be really difficult to roll a stone away after all of that stuff. But anyways, so what I believe is this, is that to further combat these false teachings that somewhere along the line in the early church, this line was added to show that Jesus was indeed fully dead, okay? So here's what I mean. We all have a body and a soul, right? And when we die, our bodies remain in the grave, but our soul leaves the body and is assigned to either heaven or hell. So by adding he descended into hell, it drives home the point that Jesus had a spirit too, that his body on Saturday was laying in that tomb, but his spirit had departed from him. Jesus fully experienced death like we all will. I think that's what they were trying to hammer home. The death process for him was complete, which set the stage for this bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, having said all of this, here's the truth. I don't think that this sentence in the creed is necessary. I don't think that having that sentence changes anything about the gospel, of who Jesus is, what he came to do for us. But I do think it could have some value for us. So just those first two words, he descended. Whether you want to say he descended in the dead or descended to hell or whatever. For me, sum up the, kind of the whole uh, of, of Jesus' life and ministry, what it was all about. See, some things were done to Jesus, and the writers of the creed got this sentiment correct. They used the passive voice to describe what happened to Jesus. They say, we looked at last week, he was crucified, he was buried. These were things that were done to Jesus. But then they switched to the active voice, and they say, he, he descended. Okay, what that tells me is that his, that's his choice, his course of action. It was his initiative. You see, Jesus' whole ministry was this decision to descend, to, to leave um, the throne room of God and descend uh, into this humble, humble himself to put on flesh and be born a child. And then Paul, you guys are familiar with Philippians chapter 2, described this so beautifully. If you can put that slide up there. 
It says, in our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He descended. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we choose to keep this statement in the creed, or we don't, what should our life look like because he descended? Right? Each week we've been trying to take a look at, if we say we believe this, then our life should look like what? So a few years ago, we did a sermon series here called The Way of Jesus. If you remember that, we tried to t- take a look at Um, What was the way in which Jesus went about being the Savior of the world? And and we focused on um, this overarching verse for that series was 1 John 2, 6. It says this, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Basically, Jesus is saying, if we say we believe in Christ, our life has to look like this which is really kind of the burden that we've been carrying into this whole sermon series on the Apostles' Creed as well, right? We've looked at the first two words of the creed, says, I believe. I believe this, 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 and this. And all these things we've been looking at these last few weeks about who God is and what he did. And then we've said, well, if we say we believe that with our mouth, what should our life look like that proves that we actually believe it? That there's not a disconnect between what we say and what we do. So the first sermon in that series on the way of Jesus was entitled The Downward Mobility of Christ. And in that sermon, I I tried to to make it clear that in order to follow the pattern of Jesus' life, to live like he lived, we would have to reject the worldly American, American narrative of upward mobility. We'd have to reject it and say, I don't believe that. I'm I'm not going to live in a way that exemplifies that. You see, Jesus' life was about consistently ridding himself of earthly possessions and titles so that he could be a servant of all and have no other gods, no other affections, no other idols in his life but his heavenly Father. So Jesus descended. One of my favorite authors um, is a guy named Henry Nouwen. Um, for one thing, he writes really small books, so I can read them really quickly. So I love that about him. But Nowen was a Catholic priest and scholar, teacher, theologian, and um, he was kind of at the, the top of the academic world. I mean, he, he rose to some pretty significant heights. For 20 years, he was a professor of um, theology at places like Notre Dame, uh, he taught at the Yale and Harvard schools of divinity. Okay? So after all of his accolades and success, though, Nowen endured what he termed as a spiritual death. His soul was suffering. He was burned out. And had lost much of his passion for ministry and really just passion for God. So he writes that he prayed this. He said, Lord, show me where you want me to go and I will follow you. 
So Nowen had this friend named Jean Venier, who was the founder of L'Arche Community, which was uh, several communities in different parts of, of the world. They're residential ministries to mentally challenged individuals. And so in this conversation that he's having with his friend during this time of struggle, his friend Venier told Nowen, he said, go and live among the poor in spirit and they will heal you. So shortly after that conversation, Nowen followed his friend's advice, moved to Toronto to one of these large communities to be the priest there in this um, community called Daybreak. So I want you to think about this. Nowen left Harvard, okay, like the pinnacle of intellectual thought and, and the brightest thinkers in our country, and he descended in the world's eyes to spend his days with the mentally challenged where he spent the last 10 years of his life. And I want to share with you what Nowen said about his experience. He said, the first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally challenged people was their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the many useful things I had done until then. Since nobody could read my books, they could not impress anyone. And since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. My considerable, um, considerable ministry experience proved even less valuable. Not being able to use any of the skills that had proved so practical in the past was a real source of anxiety. I was suddenly faced with my naked self, open for affirmations and rejections, hugs and punches, smiles and tears, all depended simply on how I was perceived at the moment. In a way, it seemed as though I was starting my life all over again. Relationships, connections, reputations could no longer be counted on. This experience was, and in many ways is, still the most important experience of my new life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, regardless of any accomplishments. I'm telling you all this because I'm deeply, deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. The great message that we have to carry as ministers of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. That's powerful, isn't it? Nowen descended in a worldly sense, but he also descended in a very spiritual sense as well. I want to put uh, one of those challenging senses on the screen for a moment that we read there um, and just kind of let that soak in for a moment. Just take a second, just read that again.
What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. So she just said that in community, what people tend to share about is not necessarily the information that they learn, but the vulnerability and authenticity that they saw in one another. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say perform or conform? Conform. Okay. Yeah. Right. So in order to get ahead, right, we have to conform to whatever it is the narrative is that is the path to get ahead. You know, so you have to become whoever the world tells you you need to become in order to get higher up the ladder, more money, whatever prestige, titles, whatever it is. Instead of conforming ourselves to Christ, which is a different example, okay? Anything else, Taylor? Okay. Yeah, good. So humility, just talking about the importance of humility and how that's really what's attractive about people, what draws us to them, um, which kind of ties into that whole sense of irrelevance. Um, in this book, it's, it's really interesting. Um, he kind of looks at the temptations that, that Satan tempted Jesus with, and the first temptation he talked about was really the temptation to be relevant. You know, um, you know, look out over this whole world and I'll give you everything that your eyes can see. And it's this idea of power and authority, um, which he didn't really have the power to give Jesus because he had it all already. But, um, but God calls us to a completely different narrative, okay? Our staff just finished reading uh, a book um, and discussing it called Strong and Weak. I'd, I'd really recommend it to you all. It's, it's extremely um, insightful. Um, and the author, Andy Crouch, in his book, he talks about this concept of flourishing. And he says that human flourishing um, kind of stands at the crossroads of authority and vulnerability. So he's got this XY axis and authority um, on this axis and vulnerability here. So if we're high in authority and high in vulnerability, uh, that quadrant is called flourishing. And then he basically kind of writes a book about how do we, how do we live um, in that place. And interestingly, he had a whole chapter entitled Descending to the Dead. And in it, he gave several examples of leaders that he was aware of 
who at certain points uh, in their life could have clung tightly to their worldly authority, but instead in in an act of of, uh, extreme vulnerability, they gave it away. And here's what Crouch said. Put that quote up. He said, The most transformative acts of our lives are likely to be the moments when we radically empty ourselves in the very settings where we would normally be expected to exercise authority. As Jim, who was this leader, one of the leaders he's talking about, has discovered, his competence is helpful, but his vulnerability is transformative. His competence is helpful, but his vulnerability is is transformative. Guys, that was, honestly, when we started this church, that was one of the things that was kind of a driving force for me was a reaction to years and years of going to small groups that were focused on information about God. I mean, I went to those things and I learned some things about God But I rarely saw any vulnerability, any sense of interaction with what what it was we learned, how we were living it out, and how we usually were falling short of it, and then how we were dealing with the fact that we were falling short of this life that we were trying to live, and what that meant, and how we needed one another then, and how I needed to encourage my brother, because... And it was just all this facade of I go to this thing, and then I know a bunch of information, and then I teach somebody else because I know more than them, and it just was just couldn't take it anymore, right? Ah, I wanted to pull my hair out. Guys, our competence can be helpful, but our vulnerability is transformative. That's what Brittany was really talking about, right? Jesus lived a life of deliberate descent. He took on the nature of a servant, right? He washed his disciples' feet. Guys, there's nothing more vulnerable than the God that created everything allowing himself to be hung naked and tortured on a cross for those that he created. He descended, he humbled himself, and God raised him up. As Peter wrote that we looked at earlier, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why he did it. That's why he descended was to bring us to God. What would it look like in our lives right now to descend so that others might be set free, so that others might come to know God? Where must we become more vulnerable to become safe places of refuge for the lost and hurting souls around us? Where are we holding on to control and the illusion of having it all together in a way that becomes a barrier to true love and intimacy with our brothers and sisters around us? Guys, Jesus descended. Is that our story as well? John the Baptist is maybe one of the greatest examples of this, right? Born with this mission, this purpose to prepare the way for Jesus, when he saw Jesus coming onto the scene to begin his ministry, he looked at him and he said, he must increase and I must decrease. I must descend. Guys, we come to the communion table today. 
really the whole ritual of communion is all about this reminder of descending, right? The way in which our freedom, our eternal salvation, our hope, our joy, our everything was purchased was through Jesus descending, allowing himself to be broken, allowing himself to be poured out so that we might live. And participation in communion, first of all, acknowledges that as we talked about last week, that that sacrifice, that level of sacrifice was necessary for what, what we've done. But we're also communicating when we take communion that we want to be like him, that we want to descend and humble ourselves. Okay, so you can imagine in our hearts, like if that's not the narrative that we're living in currently, if we're still kind of living the lie of upward mobility, and that's what's on our heart. That's really what at the core that we really desire. But then we participate in this ceremony that is supposed to mean the exact opposite. That's an example of a lack of integrity of, of our, what we say we believe in what we're doing, not lining up. And, and believe me, we've all done it because <laughs> I know I have. And so I'm not saying that, you know, you're some horrible person for doing it, but what I'm doing is I'm challenging you to consider, to, to examine yourself a little bit and to say, is that really my heart's desire here? Am I really, as, as a follower of Christ, saying that I want to reject that narrative, which means that I, I need to change the way that I live and act and think and talk and spend and all of those things so that I can fully aligned with what it means to be like Jesus who descended for us. So wrestle with that, right? Don't take this lightly. Does it cost too much for us to take it lightly? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Um, God, we thank you for things like the Apostles' Creed that just challenge us to think. Lord, and we see even within the body of Christ just some differences of opinion. Um, but Lord, none of that changes the gospel and who you are. And Lord, your example throughout Scripture is one of dissent, is one of, of consciously choosing to, to leave the position, uh, that place in heaven where you completely belong to humble yourself so that you could come and belong with us for a, a while to accomplish the, the mission laid out for you, which was to lay your life down for us. And God, you, you call us to descend. You call us to follow you, not just believe in you or believe things about you, but to be like you, which means that we have to reject some of the lies and some of the narratives that we've bought into here that really feel comfortable and that we really like. You ask us to look deeper beneath the surface of those temporary things so that we can understand the way in which uh, our friends and neighbors around us are going to come to know you is that we're going to have to reject